Hello and welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this lesson in our series, Who I Am, where we'll be studying the book of John and where we see that John is writing these things to everyone so they might believe and that in believing they might have life. In this awesome book where John presents the Messiah Jesus as God, we'll see lots of key truths and great application that we can apply to our own life. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. All right, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. Well, John chapter 3 and actually John chapter 2 verses 23 is where we're going to start. That's where we left off. A couple weeks ago, we had Jeopardy, uh, then we had last week, and I wasn't here because I was sick, and we did some, I don't know if you guys did camp stuff if you went in with Adam, but um, that's what we've been doing the past couple weeks, so now we're back in John, and today we're going to go over a huge chunk of scripture, and so we're going to try and go through it fast, Uh, we'll see how it goes, Uh, but we're going to go all the way through chapter 3, verse 21, so chapter 2, verse 23, all the way through 3. 21. For our reading this morning, I'm going to read uh, verses 14 through 18, well, 14 all the way through the end of John chapter 3. So if you guys want to turn to John chapter 3 and get there on verse 14, that's what we'll start reading. Uh, then we'll go in and we'll start at verse 23 of chapter 2. All right. So verse 14 of chapter 3 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So whoever believes in him, will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes into the light, so his deeds may be manifested or shown, having been wrought in God. All right, let's pray real quick and then we'll start. Dear God, we just come before you and thank you for this day you've given to us. Um, thank you for all you bless us with, God. Um, pray that you speak through me, be your words and not mine, God. We love you and pray all this through Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning, um, if you remember, John's writing this book so that we can see the signs, the seven or eight signs, depending on how you look at it, uh, that he writes about and that we might believe in Jesus for eternal life. So he's writing this book to show who Jesus is, and that's why we call it our who, or the series who, am, who I Am. I can't talk this morning. Who I Am, because it's showing who Jesus is. And uh, part of that is these encounters that Jesus has with people. So... Today we see an encounter with a man named Nicodemus, which is very popular. All of you guys probably have a lot of this portion of Scripture memorized. Uh, but then throughout the book of John, we actually see uh, Jesus meet these other people. Okay, And what I want you to think about is how Jesus interacts with people throughout the book of John. So today we're going to see it with Nicodemus, but how does he interact and how is it different based on or depending on who the person is that he's interacting with? So we'll see people like a Roman centurion, the Samaritan woman, um, and these other people that Jesus meets, and Nicodemus, this religious leader, and they're all from different backgrounds. And Jesus doesn't say the same thing to every single one of them. He says different things to different people. So just be, this. I just had this kind of um, in the back of my mind, and I want you to have it in the back of your mind as we go through this. Um, how does Jesus interact with the people that he's interacting with, the people that he meets? Because John selects these people and shows these, <coughs> excuse me, shows uh, these certain meetings with Jesus for a reason, okay? And so I think it's really cool. I think it's cool to see how he interacts with these people, and it shows his compassion on each individual person, and it shows his wisdom when he's talking to people about how he interacts with certain people in certain ways, okay? So be thinking about that in the back of your mind. Today we're going to see a man, uh, this man, he's a religious leader, and he's religious, but he's not righteous, or at least not righteous as in the sense of his standing before God, at least not yet. Um, he looks the part of religion, right? Because you guys all know this, this story or this account. Uh, but he has trouble understanding the basic concept of spiritual salvation. Okay, So he looks religious, he seems religious on the outside, but he can't even really comprehend uh, salvation. He does by the end, I think, but 
uh, he has trouble with it. So let's start. Uh, we're going to start in verse 23. Okay, we're going to look at the man's statement. Okay, um, so this is 23 all the way through chapter 3, verse 2. So I'm going to read it in a section here. Uh, now, if you guys remember, so far in chapter 2, there was the wedding of Cana. Jesus turned the water into wine. We believe, or I was, uh, we were thinking that maybe Peter and John believed at that point. Uh, then after that, we're not sure exactly how long, but soon after that, he goes to the temple courts, the court of the Gentiles, and he turns over the tables and all that stuff. He has that zeal. He, he does all that. Okay, And then we pick up in verse 23 here after all of that. Okay, it says, Now when he, talking about Jesus, <clears throat> was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God and as a, uh, God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, so before we even meet the man, before the man uh, Nicodemus enters the scene, John writes a little bit about this little section about uh, Jesus and what's going on with him. Okay, so how long, the question I thought of is how long has it been since the cleansing of the temple till he meets Nicodemus? Was it immediately? Was it, you know, weeks, months? What was it? Um, I don't think it was immediately, okay, right? Because if you look at verse 23, right, he's in Jerusalem, Passover, and two things happen. Well, one thing happens, many people believe, right? But many people believe because of the signs, plural, the signs which he's doing. So there, there are multiple signs here. Remember, John, how many signs does John record? Seven, eight if you include the resurrection, right? So seven or eight signs. Here he says there's many other signs that he's doing just in this very short time period um, at the beginning of his ministry. There are many other signs that he's doing and many other people that are believing. Or it says signs, plural. I don't know if it's many, but signs, plural, and then many people believe because of those signs. And so I think there's some time lapse here between him cleansing the temple and him meeting Nicodemus. And obviously I think that this is how Nicodemus hears, along with all these other people that are believing, um, about Jesus, right? Because he's starting his ministry. He did the water into wine. Who knew about that? When, who, who knew that he turned water into wine? Yeah, his, the servants and his disciples, and maybe Mary, right? And so that wasn't like public. It wasn't him coming out. And so now he's actually public, right? He's kind of almost like started his ministry now, right? He's doing these signs. People are believing. And Nicodemus hears about it, okay? Now there's this little section, verse 24 and 25, okay? And it says, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is an interesting um, little tidbit here. You know, why is, why is, it, why is John putting this in here? Um, part of it might be because in verse 1 it says, Now there was a man. Okay, and so he's talking about men here. Uh, but there's, what does this mean? Um, Jesus didn't want to entrust himself to men. Okay, there's two questions I think we need to ask. First, what and why? What does entrusting mean? Um, and then why is he not entrusting himself to men? The second one's answered in the text, right? It says he's not entrusting himself to them because, um, for he knew what was in them. He knew what was in man, or he knew all men. And at the end of verse 25, he knew what was in man. And so that's the why. But what does this entrusting mean? What is it talking about? Um, the word entrust, that means you're like giving yourself to somebody, right? You're entrusting yourself or you're entrusting something to them. Okay, and so he's saying um, it's saying that Jesus is not willing to do that to these people. Okay, so who are these people? Why is he not wanting to do this? Here's, there's actually I started looking this up. There's a ton of different opinions on this, and it's really weird. Why is there a ton of different opinions on this? Okay, but here's three that I think that um, are all viable and all could be a possibility. Okay, so the first one, <clears throat> this could be a general statement that Jesus knows mankind is not trustworthy. Okay, um, I don't, I don't think that's it, but that definitely could be it. It's just a general statement of, hey, mankind is not trustworthy, and Jesus is not entrusting you know, to himself to them. Second one, um, and this is, I think what Bob Wilkins says, and maybe um, Constable, I can't remember, but uh, Jesus is specifically talking about those who had just believed, okay, because it says them, and it, they're saying that them goes back to those who had just believed, 
and the believers um, are secret believers, and so he's not entrusting, he's not really trusting them um, or entrusting himself to them because they're secret believers and they're not willing to actually come out like Nicodemus. And so uh, some guys will say they'll like make a contrast between Nicodemus and John the Baptist as a secret believer and a non-secret believer or someone who's in the open and comes out into the light and things like that. Um, I That could be a possibility too. I don't really think that because um, that's more like Jesus isn't trusting them rather than entrusting himself to them. And when I think of entrusting himself, I think of uh, John chapter 6. You guys can write that down if you want. But in John chapter 6, the people of Israel or the people around that specific area where he was, they were trying to make him king. Okay? These, they're Jews and they're trying to make him king, but they're trying to make him king for the wrong reason, remember? It says Jesus basically got away from them because he knew they were about to try and make him king. And they were trying to make him king because he could provide bread for them. Right? And so they're doing it for the wrong reason. And so a third uh, possibility is this is a kind of a general statement about men, uh, specifically probably these believers that had just believed, but it's saying that he's not willing to entrust them himself as the coming Messiah to them yet because they would make him king for the wrong reasons. Because maybe the signs that he was doing or because of the, you know, in that other case in John 6, the bread he was giving them or because he could conquer the Romans or something like that. And so I kind of take this third one and say, when he's saying in 24 and 25, he's saying he didn't want to entrust himself to these people because he knew what was in man and what they would do with it. And so he came to be the Messiah, right? And if Israel would have accepted him, accepted him as a Messiah, that would have been a good thing, right? I mean, generally speaking, in the line of thought, right? So if, he, if they accept him as Messiah, he's their king. But I think it's saying he's not ready to give himself to man yet because they would, do, they would make him king for the wrong reason. They wouldn't actually accept him as Messiah, although they might try and put him on the throne. And so I think that goes with uh, John chapter 6. And I think it goes with all this here because he's just now coming out, if you think about it, he's just now coming out and starting to do all these signs, right? And so there may be a, a group of people that's like, yeah, let's get him on the throne. Let's put him on the throne. He can overthrow the Romans or he can do this for us. He can do that for us. And so that's kind of how I take it. But like I said, there's a lot of possibilities and a lot of options there for people and, and what that exactly means. But the point here is that he didn't entrust himself to these people. And I think more importantly, he knows what's in man. And he knows what's in all man. And uh, that's, he knows that for several reasons, right? What are some reasons why he would know what's in man? It's not hard. It's, it's just like a simple Because he's God, right? And God knows everything. That's one. What are some, because he is a man. He, he became a man, right? So he's not only God and he knows all, but he actually became a man so he understands man. And that's like it goes with Hebrews where it says he's tempted in every way, right? And he knows he understands, right? And then I think of also, it goes with God, but creator. Like he made us, right? So he knows what's in us because he made us. Um, so yeah, he knows what's in man. All men. All kinds of men. Okay? But now, in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees. Did he know what was in this man? Yeah. Can I interject something here? Yeah. So I think that um, when it says many believed in his name, that, that does mean that those people had eternal life. Because yes. there's even maybe a fourth view that some people will say that because it says that he didn't entrust himself to them, that they're saying that they didn't really believe or something yes. like that. Yes, no, there's a, so there's like a fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh yeah. view, <laughs> and I don't believe any of them at all because of that reason. Most of those say that these guys uh, didn't actually believe, they didn't have a true faith in, um, in Jesus, and so that's why he wasn't trusting them or entrusting himself to them. Okay, but but all throughout John, whenever he says believe in him or believe in his name, he's talking about people that have eternal life. Yeah, I I agree one hundred percent. I think textually, you cannot say that these people are not saved. They are saved one hundred percent because that's what John, like you said, that's all throughout John, and it says they believed. I mean, I mean, it says they believed, and like sixteen verses later, it says believe and you have eternal life. So it's like, I mean, these guys are definitely saved, um, and some of them probably are secret disciples, kind of like uh, Nicodemus is going to. But I think some of them weren't, too. I mean, I think some of these guys are actually starting to follow Jesus, too. I think it's a mixture. I don't think it's like, you know, some people might say these are all secret disciples that Jesus had in this group of secret disciples. But, like, I mean, some of the disciples just now believed at the wedding of Cana, you know, and they're following him. They're not secret disciples. And 
So even, uh, even those guys didn't understand necessarily that Jesus was going to die. Yeah. That that's why he came was to die. He will eventually be king, but even even those guys probably were, were itching to make him king. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, and they're yeah. So just because they wanted to make him king for the wrong reason does not mean they weren't saved. Okay, uh, and I think there was a. I think there was a lot of people, even in John 6, who were getting fed that were saved. I mean, I don't know how many were and how many weren't, but I think there were some that were for sure. Definitely his disciples were aware. But even if they're trying to make him king because they can feed him, that doesn't mean they're not saved, right? So that's, that is a good point, Brent. And so these guys, <clears throat> whoever he's entrusting himself to, um, whether that's all men or these believing or the Jews, I think it's most likely either the Jews as a whole, and he's making a statement saying, some of the Jews are starting to believe, but he's not ready to entrust himself to the Jews. Or he's saying these select people have believed, and he's not ready to entrust himself to those select people who believed. Either way, though, the believing ones are the ones who believe, um, and they are believers and eternally secure. Thank you, Brent, for that. And you're right, there are like four more, five more of these options, and all, all the rest of them kind of say, well, those people might not be saved, you know, and that's just... I mean, it's just bogus. It doesn't really fit with the context. It doesn't really fit with the, the grammar. It doesn't fit with any of it, really. So I didn't even list them, but I probably should have. So, all right. Uh, so he gets done with all that. He says, I'm not going to trust. Uh, he's not entrusting himself to man. And he says, now there was a man, okay? And that man is Nicodemus, okay? So he's a, he's a Pharisee or he's of the Pharisees. And this is verse 1. His name is Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, this man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are come from God, or you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So now this man comes on the scene. This is the meeting of Nicodemus and how Jesus interacts with him. Pay attention to it and listen to it. And especially listen to it because here in chapter 4, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to not talk about, we're going to see him meet the Samaritan woman. And think about the difference in language to a Pharisee and a Samaritan woman, because the language is totally different, but the end result is the same. Okay, and it's really cool, I think. But anyway, this guy comes by night. So the first question, in which all of you guys know, I'm pretty sure. Okay, why did Jesus come by night, or why did uh, Nicodemus come to Jesus by night? Yeah, probably because he didn't want to be seen. Right? He didn't want to be seen. Why would um, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, not want to be seen with this new and up and coming teacher? What'd you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it. If you're a ruler, you're the you're the top of the uh, food chain, right, in religion, and you go to this up and coming teacher that is very at this point may not be super um, controversial, but is getting more and more controversial, and he probably already is a little bit because he cleaned out the temple, okay. And so you come to this guy, your your colleagues. Okay, your other Pharisees around you were going to say, what are you doing going to this guy? Why are you talking to this guy? Okay, and so he's coming by night probably because he's scared. He doesn't, doesn't uh, want people to think badly about him. Um, and then he makes a statement, okay, which I've been thinking about it, and I don't know why he makes, like, why does he come and, like, tell something to Jesus? Like, he doesn't come with a question. He comes and he's like, Here's a statement for you, Jesus. And I, I don't know why. I don't know if he like, meant to be a question, but here's what it is. He says, teacher or rabbi, you know or uh, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do the signs you do unless God's with him. So I don't know if this is a, like a question like, we know you're from God, right? You know what I mean? Or if it's just like he came and he stated it and he's like, Jesus is like, okay, thanks. You know, you know he could have just said that and walked away. So he comes and he makes a statement. He doesn't even ask a question. Um, and he's stating that he knows Jesus is from God as a teacher. Okay, Now, he's not saying, I don't believe right here, he is saying that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't think he's saying, I know that you're from God and are the Messiah. I think he's saying, I know you're from God like Isaiah was from God, or like Jeremiah was from God, or like you know whatever was from God because of what you're doing, the good things you're doing, and the signs you're performing, you have to be from God. I don't think he believes uh, in... Jesus is the Messiah here, and I believe that's why Jesus answers the way he does, and he goes on, and we'll look at it, and he uh, gets right to the point of eternal salvation, okay? So, 
Number two, spiritual and physical. This is when Jesus replies. This starts in verse 3 and goes all the way through verse 8. Okay, we'll read all, all, all of these, 3 all the way through 8, and then we'll come back to 3. So Jesus answered him. So he makes this statement. Jesus, I know that you're from God. Okay, and then Jesus answered. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus comes out and he answers him and he says, Hey, you say I'm from God, but I'm telling you that anyone... Uh, or unless someone is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Unless somebody's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Of course, we know what he's talking about there. When he gets straight to the point, we know he's talking about spiritual birth, right? He comes and he says, hey, you got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, Nicodemus is still thinking in the lines of physical realm here, okay? And I don't think this is the, the direction that... Nicodemus probably thought the conversation was going to go when he went up to Jesus. But he's like, okay, so how are you going to be born a second time? You can't enter into your mom again and be born a second time. So what do you mean born again? He's basically saying, I don't know what you mean by being born again. I don't know what that means. Um, And obviously he's thinking physical here. Okay, so then Jesus answers in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say, unless you're born of water and of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, and so... A lot of people here, not a lot of people, a few people here might say that this water and spirit are two different births, one being baptism, one being um, the obviously the baptism of the Holy Spirit or like uh, spiritual birth. And so some people would say here that you have to be baptized to be saved. Uh, it doesn't fit the context though um, for a couple reasons. Number one, like water, um, born of water isn't like an expression for baptism really anywhere. So it's like, you just kind of have to pull that out and say this is like one of the only spots that, you know, this is the only spot it says that for baptism. Uh, but then secondly, 6, verse 6, Jesus actually explains what he's saying. Okay, If you look at verse 6, it says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he's talking about two different births here, physical birth and spiritual birth. Okay, He's saying you have to be born physically to have physical life. You have to be born spiritually to have spiritual life. Right? Have to be born physical or physically to have physical life and spiritually to have spiritual life. Okay, and so he's making this parallel for uh, Nicodemus so he can understand better. Listen, you were born once physically and you have physical life, right? Did Nicodemus have physical life? Yeah, because he was born, right? I mean, it's obvious, right? And, but he didn't have spiritual life. So he was saying you need to be born again, born a second time, born spiritually. Um, the water birth is the flesh. And then the spiritual birth is um, being born again, eternal life. So Jesus' point is you've got to be born again spiritually in order to see the kingdom of God. Um, all right, so then he goes on in verse 7. It says, Do not be amazed. I say to you, you must be born again. And this one's kind of like a restatement, so like a lot of times I skip over it. But this, uh, this word you right there in the English, he says, I say to you, but then it says you must be born again. The second you is actually plural, which is interesting. Because he's, he's not saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again, even though Nicodemus does. He's saying basically y'all in the South, right? You all need to be born again. Everyone needs to be born again um, to have a spiritual life. So I thought that was really interesting. And then uh, Jesus goes on in verse 8, and he gives us a little illustration. Okay, he gives us a little illustration. It says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Um, he gives this illustration. Sometimes I'm like, man, like why? You couldn't have given like a little bit of an easier illustration. Like, what does it mean? Like, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it is. Or it's going. So is everyone born? Like, you know what I mean? Like, why didn't you just give us like something really easy? Um, and I don't know why. Part of it is probably because of who he was talking to, and the example he gave probably fit. The person that he was talking to, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we'll see in a second, still doesn't understand it. Um, but here's, uh, I have this quote from Constable to help us a little bit. But there's similarities 
okay, between the wind and the spirit and the people born of um, born of the spirit. Okay, so it says this is constable. He says there are three similarities. First, both the spirit. This is talking about the spirit and wind. Okay, the similarities between the spirit and wind first. And then the next one is born of the spirit. So first, both the spirit and the wind operate sovereignly. Okay, meaning man doesn't or cannot control either one. Okay, so like the wind blows and it, you know, we can't necessarily control it. Okay, and the spirit of God. Okay, the spirit, like we're not controlling God. Okay, in that in that same regard. Okay, that's what he's saying there. Constable saying. Second, we perceive the presence of both by their effects, meaning you can't actually see spiritual things, but you can still see the effects of spiritual things. You can't see wind, but you can see the effects of wind. Okay, and then third. Uh, we cannot explain their actions since they arise from unseen uh, and unknown factors. They are mysterious, and I think uh, Constable would say uh, specifically to unbelievers. Unbelievers don't understand the things of God, um, you know, the, the Spirit of God. They don't understand spiritual things. They're not spiritually praised, as it says, and so they don't understand those things. And so we can't explain it in that way. And the same thing, we can't explain the wind, especially in Jesus' time. Okay? We can explain where the wind comes from a little bit better today, uh, but... Not as much back then. Okay, and then number the, the second quote down there, the person born of the Spirit is similar to both Spirit and the wind, and that is impossible for unregenerate unregenerate person to understand um, or control him or her. That's just what I said before. Spiritual fool, if you're not a believer, uh, you don't understand the things of God, right? You don't understand the ways of the Spirit of God and the things that uh, it's doing. Uh, that's what it says in, I'm losing it, 1 Corinthians. Is it 1 Corinthians? He's spiritually... Three, yeah, yeah. First Corinthians? Three, yeah. Okay, I think it's First Corinthians, but anyway, I can look at it later. Okay, so they don't understand his or her origin or final destiny, uh, and Nicodemus uh, should have understood this too. Okay, and so anyway, basically, there's similarities in that the wind, we don't always, especially, uh, we don't always understand where it is or where it's coming from, and unbelievers don't understand that as well. Uh, the spirit is uh, like that, okay, and then uh, we can't control it. Okay, and I, again, I think that's just talking about like, um, like we don't control God. Like we can't control God and we can't control the wind. Like I can't make the wind go a certain way and I can't control God. And then I think also, uh, more importantly, because Nicodemus isn't understanding these things and because he's having trouble understanding these things, maybe Jesus is alluding to the fact that, hey, you need, you need God to help you even understand this spiritual thing. You can't understand where the wind's going. You don't understand what it's doing. And you may not understand the things that are happening with these people who are born again and the Holy Spirit and how it's, work, how it's working in them or whatever. But, you know, God can help you understand, Nicodemus, what's going on here. Um, again, this is a hard illustration for me. Okay? Uh, it is. But I think that's what he's saying. I think the bottom line is Nicodemus isn't understanding it because it's spiritually appraised, okay, as 1 Corinthians says. Uh, but he, Jesus is going to help him understand it, okay? And that's what he does next. Okay, uh, Nicodemus, okay, this is, uh, this is next. You don't know, he, Jesus is like, Nicodemus, you don't know, uh, you don't understand. And I, I can see Jesus' tone being a little sharp here. But Nicodemus says, how can this be? How can these things be? This is verse 9. And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, but you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I would have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You are no one, sorry, no one is ascended into heaven, but he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so Jesus, uh, he's like, how do you not get this? If you're a teacher of, uh, you know, the teacher, it actually says the teacher. If you're the teacher in Israel, how do you not understand these things? Well, how does he not understand them? Because maybe he's not maybe he's not even a believer. You know, maybe he's been trusting in the law or in his own works this whole time, and he, and he doesn't actually even know any of this stuff. Uh, maybe he hasn't been studying the Scriptures like he should in with the right viewpoint of there is a coming Messiah, and I need to trust him to be saved. Maybe he's trusting in his own works. I don't know. Uh, that would kind of go back to that wind illustration, okay? But uh, whenever I think of, like, I was trying to think of an illustration of not understanding something. Okay, and uh, so Pike, this is recent, okay? Pike will see these birds, and he'll see them out in our backyard, or he'll see them like, up on a line, or even seen them fly over. And uh, he'll just come up to me and say, Dad, I'm going to go catch that bird. I'm going to go catch that bird. And I'll be like, Pike, you're not going to catch that bird. He's like, no, I'm going to go catch that bird. I'll wait till it lands. Don't worry, I'll go catch it. 
I'm like, dude, no, you you don't understand. Like you you like you're you're not fast enough. You can't catch a bird. You can't just go catch a bird. But he like it just doesn't he doesn't it doesn't make sense. Like he, he doesn't understand that he can't just go catch a bird. But he really wants to go catch a bird. And I want him to. It'd be awesome if he went and caught a bird. But like he's like, Oh, there's a bird. I'm gonna go catch that bird, Dad. I'm like, Okay. Like the other day he was uh he went he climbed up the slide and he was standing on the side, he's like, I'm waiting to catch a bird. <laughs> he's standing on the side, he's like, I'm waiting to catch a bird. I'm like, Okay. Uh <clears throat> you're gonna be there for a while, buddy. Um, so anyway, he doesn't understand he just doesn't get it. It's not clicking in his mind that he can't like just go catch a bird. And in the same way, it's not clicking for Nicodemus. Like it's not clicking. It's like born again. I don't understand this. I don't get what you're saying. Okay. I don't understand this this spiritual side of it. I'm not getting it. Okay. And so he asks, and Jesus is like, "You're the the teacher, and you don't get this." Okay. And I think that this statement by Jesus, when he says, "You're the teacher, and you don't understand," shows us that religion can't ever make us understand. Okay, and religion isn't what we need. Okay, we need God. And we need God to understand. We need God to for everything, right? This guy was the most religious. Did he know the Bible? He's a Pharisee, he should have, right? He probably did if he was the teacher and he was teaching the Bible. Okay? But everything that he did, I think, uh, was from a religion aspect and rather than a relationship aspect. And that can be true of us and of people around us as well. We can get to the point where it's all in a religion and it's not about having an actual relationship with Jesus. Right? And there are a lot of people like that. And I think he took it even to the extent of probably he was trusting in his works to be saved. Okay? Because I don't think he's saved yet here. And so I think he was trusting his works to be saved. And even though he knew the Bible, he didn't even see that there was a Messiah in the Bible. Or he did and he, and he looked at it as a physical salvation or as a... As, not as a spiritual salvation because he didn't think he needed that. Okay? And so he's very religious. He's the teacher, but he doesn't understand even like eternal life in that aspect. Like, like he doesn't even understand how you can be saved spiritually. He doesn't even understand that you need to be born again. Okay? And so, um, I don't know. I just thought that was cool and important uh, to note that sometimes uh, other people or even us can be religious and not be focused on our relationship with Christ, but rather be focused on you know, the ins and outs of religion and how, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And when really we should be focused on our relationship with Jesus and how we can grow um, grow in uh, Christ. So, anyway, he answers, he says, You're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? He says in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify and what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Okay, now there's another big debate on who the we is, of course. Um, you know, who when he says that, who do you think the we is? It says in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, we speak of what we know and what we testify. It could be, yeah, him and the people who follow him. What are some other options? Yeah, the Trinity. It could be the Trinity, we, yeah. What are some other ones? Any others you can think of? The other big one, well, there's two other big ones. One of the other big ones is him and John the Baptist. Because John was the testifier. Um, and then the other one was him, John the Baptist, and the prophets. Because they were all testifying about the coming Messiah. Uh, so we don't know who the we is there. But it could have really, those are the five, I think, viable options. could be him, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the we. We speak of what we know. The only thing I don't, I think that like kind of kicks that one, is the one speaking is Jesus. Okay, it is we through the prophets and through other people, you know, God spoke. But, you know, that could be that. Him and John the Baptist, I think that's definitely viable because uh, who is the one who testified about the coming Messiah was John the Baptist. Him, John the Baptist, and prophets could be. Him and the other believers could be as well. Just a we as in we who have been born again, as in like all, those, all these people who have been born again testify, like we're the testimony, we're the testifying um, uh, of these things that we have seen, okay? Um, so, testifying of the things that they've seen, and they are not accepting, or uh, Nicodemus is not accepting of the testimony, okay? And he says, if I told you these earthly things and you believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so, Jesus is basically telling, I haven't told you anything yet. Like, I've told you basic things, elementary things, and you don't understand it. So how am I going to, how are you going to understand it if I tell you deeper things? Right? And then he goes on, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
Okay, and so no one has, uh, in verse 13, no one has personally ascended into heaven and descended, okay, other than Jesus. Jesus was in heaven and he descended, okay, and he is the Son of Man. And so he's saying basically, I know heavenly things because I was in heaven, kind of. That's kind of like the idea that he's saying. Now, there's like prophets and stuff that have gone in vision to heaven or in dreams to heaven, but Jesus is the only like, but at this point, okay, before he died and rose again, he's the only one who actually was able to be with God, right, in heaven. And that's him. It's the Son of Man. Okay, and then he uses that Son of Man to say, uh, to start verse 14. And this is the popular passage, and this is the, the good part of it all, I think. Um, I really like it all. So this is when the explanation comes. And this is one of the most clear passages um, on the gospel that there is. Okay, that's why we all love it. Uh, Jesus uses an example, and he uses an example that I can understand really easy, which I like. Okay, and it's the example of Moses and um, the people of Israel in, in Numbers chapter twenty-one. Okay, so this is it. I'm going to read all the way fourteen through uh, twenty-one again. It says, "As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him." shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who uh, believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and the men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone uh, who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light, for fear his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes into the light, so that the deeds may be manifested or shown as having wrought, been wrought in God. Okay, so now Jesus explains in details what he's talking about. 14 through 16 is this little explanation, and then 17 through 21 tells us about Jesus' mission as he's here on earth. Okay, uh, this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be, must be lifted up. He uses an example from Old Testament. Again, should Nicodemus know that story? Yeah, like, it, like the back of his hand, right? He knows what he's talking about when he says Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Okay, he doesn't. Jesus doesn't use that example with the uh, the Samaritan woman, next chapter, or with uh, the Roman, you know, or with you know these other people. He uses it with somebody who will understand it, which I think is important. I think it's a side note, but I think it's important. So what happens in uh, Numbers chapter twenty-one? Uh, that's where it's at. If you want to write it down, what happens in this Old Testament account? Okay, the people. Uh, Basically, as always, they were, they were like complaining and all this stuff, okay? So they were being bad. And uh, God sends, in Numbers 21, God sends snakes among them. And the snakes start uh, biting them, and people start dying, okay? And so all these people are dying, and they need, they need saved, okay? And uh, Moses goes to God, and God's like, okay, hey, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make a bronze snake. You're going to put it up on a pole in the middle of the camp. Anybody who looks at the pole after they've been bitten, they'll be saved. Okay, they won't die. And so Jesus says, just like that, just like Moses lifted up that serpent, the Son of Man is going to have to be lifted up as well. Okay, and so there's some comparison here uh, to this story that I like. Okay, here um, I've gone for you. Moses, it doesn't mean Moses, when I'm comparing, I'm not comparing Moses and Jesus, but Jesus' sacrifice and the story in Moses. Okay, so you'll see it. You'll see it. But okay, so the snake had to be lifted up on the pole, Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross. Okay, that's direct comparison, and that's the one that's stated here. Okay, Moses lifted up that, and uh, Jesus was lifted up on the pole or on the cross. Okay, salvation came through the snake. Okay, salvation comes through Jesus, right? Even though salvation technically came through through God, right? They had to look through to the snake. Okay, just like we have to believe in Jesus for eternal life. Okay, they had to look to the snake to be saved. Okay, different kind of salvation. Okay, physical and spiritual, but Here's another one that I thought was interesting. They didn't have to do anything special to be saved. Okay, in that all they had to do was look at the snake. That's it. They didn't have to go uh, dip in the Jordan seven times like the blind guy. They didn't have to do all this stuff. They didn't have to be this certain way or this certain kind of person. They just had to look at the snake. There's nothing they had to do. Same thing with salvation, right? There's nothing that we have to do, right? So I thought that was a cool parallel. The other one I thought was interesting. They were both offered to everyone who needed it, salvation. 
Okay, there wasn't a select group of Israelites that it was offered to. It wasn't offered to certain Israelites. It was offered to every Israelite and just the Israelites because the Israelites were the ones getting bitten. Right? They were the ones that needed saving. And Jesus offers eternal life to everyone who needs it, which is who? Everyone, because everyone needs it, right? So both of them were offered to everybody. Both of them had no works necessary. Uh, both of them were salvation going through, through Jesus or through the snake. And both of them had to be lifted up. Okay, one lifted up on a pole, one lifted up on a cross. Okay, so these are some, some, of the compar- some of the comparisons. Okay, so in verse 14, Even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Okay, so Jesus is the who's... Um, we believe in Jesus and we have eternal life. That's the salvation coming through Jesus. Okay, and then obviously the most popular verse in the Bible, all of you guys can quote, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And there's so much in that verse. You guys know it like the back of your hand, but um, there's a lot of uh, false doctrines that can all be refuted from that one verse right there. Okay, One of them is that God doesn't love everybody the same. Okay, But it says that Greek word is agape. You guys know that word, right? Everybody's heard of agape. Okay, Strongest kind of love. Usually that kind of love, agape, is only used for God-loving man, not man-loving God. Um, and it says that strongest kind of love, God loves the cosmos, is the Greek word there. That means everything, not everything, everyone, every human <coughs> on the earth. It's the idea of encompassing everyone on earth. So he has the strongest love for everyone on earth. Okay, So there's, there's one uh, false doctrine that I've heard right there in the first five words of that verse that's refuted, that God doesn't love everybody the same. Um, he does. He loves everyone. Okay, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Again, uh, showing that there's no works to belief in Jesus for eternal life, and you get it. Um, that refutes a lot of people and a lot of ideas there, um, obviously. And um, if you're Nicodemus, okay, and you're a Pharisee, and you believe that the works of the law is how you're going to enter the kingdom of God, or enter um, eternal life, if you will, and you believe this, and this is what you believe growing up, and you've gotten to a point where you're the teacher of Israel, and you're teaching that. And then Jesus says, for God so loved the world that He gave. You know what I mean? And Jesus says that. Hey, we don't think about who He's saying that to, when He's saying it, and why He's saying it a lot of times. But that would have rocked my world if I was Nicodemus. Or I would have thrown it out as trash. One or the other, right? If I believed Jesus, it would rock my world because that's not what I believe my whole life. If, if I don't want to believe it, I'm going to throw it out as trash as quick as I can because I don't want to believe that because it's not what I believe for my entire life, right? That's just, to me, those are the two natural responses of a person when something like this happens. Okay, but this is a, this is a huge, huge deal, I think, for Nicodemus just to show that literally all you have to do is believe in the Messiah, okay, and, and you get eternal life, or the Son of Man, okay, as, as he puts it here. Okay, then in verse 17, we see the mission. We see Christ's mission. And I really like these verses. Um, there's a time when I was like, I don't really understand verse 18 that well. But it's, uh, it's really good Okay, when we start looking at it. Okay, verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And that's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? Jesus didn't come to judge, but to save, right? That, does that make sense? Okay, Jesus didn't come to judge, but to save. He came, and that goes with verse 16, right? God sent His only Son that He could save the world. Anybody who believes in Him would be saved, right? So it fits. He's, he says uh, He's coming to save, not to condemn or judge, okay? Um, the Greek word judge there is, uh, it's called krino, is the, is the Greek word. And it means to pass judgment on somebody. So like, it's, a, you know, it, some people, some of your versions, they say condemn. I, I mean, I think that's okay. Uh, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the idea is passing judgment on somebody or like passing the verdict on somebody and judging someone. Okay? Um, and so, but anyway, he, he didn't come to condemn or pass judgment to judge the world, but to save that the world might be saved through him. Okay, then look at verse 18. Okay, it says, He who believes in him is not judged. Okay, Jesus isn't going to judge those who believe, right? Because why? Because he came to save them and they believe. Okay? He's not going to judge them okay, because they believe. They're believers. Believers aren't going to be judged because they believe. Okay? So he's not going to judge those people. 
Okay? And then he who does not believe, okay, these are the people that are going to be judged. Are the people that don't believe going to be judged? Eventually, someday, right? With great white throne judgment. Right? And so so these people who do not believe, they have been judged already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so this is something really interesting that I saw um, when I was going through Greek, actually, uh, with JB, and said, Jesus doesn't have to judge us. We judge ourselves, in a sense, okay? Because we're all sinners. We're judged already. We're doomed already. We're condemned already. Jesus didn't have to come to the earth to condemn us or to judge us because we're all judged and condemned already, okay? We're all sinners, and all sinners uh, deserve death. And so Jesus didn't have to come to judge us. Does that make sense? We've already been judged, okay? That means the only reason that Jesus needs to come is for salvation okay which again some people may not say that but there, there's only one reason why he come why he needed to come and that was salvation okay we, he didn't have to come to judge us like god can look down you could say hey honor you're already judged you're already condemned right okay i believe so you know not now but you can say you already judged you're already condemned because you're a sinner and all sinners deserve death so jesus didn't come in to say hey you guys are a bunch of sinners and you need, he came in to save, right? That's why he came. He came to save us. Hey, I have this, um, again, this might be boring for some of you, but Julian might like it, I don't know. So this is Greek, okay? And so if you take languages, uh, these two right here that are bold, these are, um, these, this is verse 18. So these are um, the believes, okay? He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe in him and judge already. Okay, so those are the first two believes in the word, and they're both these things called participles. Okay, participles are a word that have characteristics of both a verb and an adjective. Okay, so they're like an action, a describing action kind of thing. Okay, so anyway, uh, there's a bunch of people that use this verse and a couple other verses to say that you have to be believing at the moment in order to be saved. Okay, meaning that like if you are not always believing, then you're not a believer. Okay, the only problem with that is in the Greek, a participle, okay, it's a verbal adjective. Okay, so if something is a verbal adjective, okay, and some of you are glazed over, and that's, you know, I'm sorry, but uh, if it's a verbal adjective, that means it's describing the person. So, example, um, if I am a runner, okay, do I have to always be running to be a runner? No, because it's a it's a verbal adjective. It's describing. A, is a, describing a verb about myself, it's, and it's making me. So, an example of this is back in chapter one, uh, John the Baptist. Okay, in the Greek, it's John the baptizing one, and that is a participle. It's describing who he is. So, does John always have to be baptizing? No, it's never like that. Okay, the participle is never like that. It's just something that's describing. So, in English, you could say the believer and the unbeliever, right? Because that's like a for us, it's kind of like a participle, like the believer, the one who believed. It's a verbal adjective. You're describing someone based on an action that they perform. In this case, the action would be belief. I believe in Jesus for eternal life, therefore I am a believer. So the interesting thing is when somebody comes and they say they use these participles is what they are actually using, just FYI, I don't know if you'll ever use this, but they're using these participles and they'll say, you have to continue believing. Okay, because a lot of times you can translate a participle with an ing. So let's say the believing one, you know, or something like that. And so let's say, look, the believing one. That means you have to always be believing in order to actually be a believer. But it, it doesn't work with the grammar. So I just thought I'd throw that in there for fun uh, for you guys. I know it wasn't fun for some of you, but. Kind of, uh, kind of, but it's like an adjective. So it's like describing. It's like describing someone or something in a verb form. So like a verb is I ran. That's a verb, right? It's an action, right? Right. Okay, so like a runner, that's, like that's kind of like a participle. He's a runner. It's an, it's an action that's describing a person. You know, the baptizing one, John the Baptist, it's an action. The action is baptizing, okay, and it's describing the person. And this, and in a lot of other places, it's the believer. The believer is describing the person, 
right? And so, and the hard thing is in Greek, a lot of times you do just, you do uh, translate participles as ing's, so like believing or whatever. And so then they'll describe, then they'll say, well, because it's believing, it's something that you have to keep on doing. But it's not, it's a participle. Does that make sense? So that's why some people try and take it in the English and say, oh no, this, this means you have to keep on believing or you have to be believing at the moment in order to be a believer. It's just, it doesn't work grammatically in the Greek. So anyway, that was just for fun. Uh, a little extra bonus for Jillian, because I know she likes that stuff. Um, so anyway, all that to be said, okay, this one, it says in verse 18, the one who believes in him is not judged. That's, that's a one-time thing still. Okay, The one who believed in Jesus for eternal life, okay, that one is the one that is not judged. Okay, And it doesn't use past tense here. Like It doesn't say the one who believed, because I think because it wants to say the one who believed or who will believe. Right, and so I think that's why he's using a participle here. He's saying, I want you to know it's the one describing the person. It's anyone who believes. You know, it's not just somebody who believed in the past. You know, it's anyone who believes past, present, or future. Okay, and so I think that's why he used a participle there. But, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know that much about it. Um, so, anyway, 18, if you believe, if you are a believer in English, maybe a good way to say it, then you are not judged. If you are an unbeliever, then you're already judged. Jesus didn't have to come to judge you because you're an unbeliever, right? And because all sin. And so that's what that says. Okay, so verse 19. Okay, verse 19 uh, through 21. This is good, and I think it's good for us. Um, he's talking to an unbeliever here. He's talking to Nicodemus, um, and he, he says some cool things in here. If you're not careful, I think that you could take some of these and try and put them onto salvation when they're really not meant to be. Uh, but I think it's really good for us, and I think it's very applicable for us. Okay, so let's read it, and then we'll be done. I'm sorry, it's going so long. Okay, so this is the judgment that the light came into the world. Who's the light? Who's the light? Jesus, right? Capital, right? He's the light. Okay, so that's we got that from chapter one. Okay, so this is the judgment that Jesus, the light, came into the world, and men or mankind love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Okay, this is a general statement that goes with verse 18. Okay, it says that they didn't need to be judged by Jesus. Why? Because they did not believe, and all men are judged based, or and all men are judged because, or all men are condemned, or whatever. All men have the payment of death that they owe. Jesus doesn't have to come to make them have to owe death, right? And so he says, when the judgment or the light, when the light did come into the world, mankind loved darkness. They don't have to be judged. They, they judge themselves, essentially, because they're, they're loving the darkness. That's where they're going, right? And then verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes into light, so his deeds may be shown as having been wrought in God. So this can get a little tough sometimes um, if we automatically assume everything is for salvation here, right? So it says everyone who does evil hates the light. Okay, and so some people, again, might say we're, going, we're talking a lot about other uh, um, wrong theologies, I guess, a lot, but that's okay. It'd be good. So a lot of people, um, a lot of people might say, well, if if you uh, do evil, or if you practice evil, okay, some of your, uh, I think some of your say practice right there, some translations, but anyway, if you practice evil or continue in evil, then you hate the light, and that means that you were never saved. Okay, and that's what they'll take out of this. However, that's not what it says. Okay, there's a distinguish here, or there's a um, distinguishing mark here, but the distinguishing mark is not of a believer and unbeliever, I do not think. I think the distinguishing mark is between godly and fleshly. Okay, godly and fleshly. Okay, so everyone who hates evil, that is someone living in the, or sorry, everyone who does evil, everyone who does evil, who does evil, first off? Everyone, right? Everyone does evil, right? But then, if I do evil, okay, that means that I hate the light. Okay, when we sin, we do hate the light. Okay, who doesn't ever do evil? Jesus. He never did evil, okay, which I think is important in this context, too. Okay, which we'll talk about in a second. So, he does not come into the light, for his deeds will be exposed. So, he, if we do evil, we don't want to come into the light, into Jesus, okay? We don't want to come into that light for fear our deeds will be exposed. I think that's a general truth as well, for sure. Okay, and then in verse 21, But he who practices the truth comes into the light, so that his deeds may be shown as having been wrought 
in God. So if we're doing, if we uh, practice the truth, hey, we're okay with coming into the light. Why? Because we're practicing the truth. Now, um, Bob Wilkin, he makes a distinction here between John the Baptist and Nicodemus again, saying that Nicodemus, and, and this is true too, and it shows that this isn't just talking about believers and unbelievers. He says Nicodemus is a believer right after this, but he stays in the darkness and he wants to hide. And John the Baptist uh, was one who stayed in the light because he, he was a testifier. Right? So it's two believers. He says one in darkness, one in light. I don't know if I go that far or not, but um, I like that idea. I think that could be it for sure. Uh, but I think in general, as those who are, do evil things, we are in the darkness. It's just like in First John, right? And this First John, the same author, right? He, he makes a distinction of light and darkness. He makes a distinction of when we're walking in the uh, spirit and when we're walking in the flesh. When we're walking in the flesh, it's darkness. When we're walking in the spirit, it's light. Okay, and I think it's also important uh, because who practices truth and who practices evil? Do believers practice truth and unbelievers practice evil? Not necessarily, right? Okay, who always practices truth? Jesus. And I think that's a really important thing in this. Because I think Jesus, I, I mean, I don't think it just applies to Jesus, but I think Jesus is saying, hey, I am the light. I do practice truth. And um, my deeds are now being manifested or shown, okay, because they are from God. Okay, because remember, Nicodemus doesn't even necessarily, if he has an inkling, he might have an inkling, but he doesn't even necessarily think that Jesus is a Messiah or anything. Right? And so Jesus is saying, hey, my deeds, they're coming into the light because they are from God. Like you said in the very beginning, Nicodemus, they are from God. Okay? Uh, but also I think it applies to believers as well. Um, as believers, I think that we should be walking in the light rather than walking in darkness. I think we can walk in darkness because not every believer practices, I don't practice truth all the time. Right? And there's times that I practice evil. And so I think there's a clear distinction here, not of believer and unbeliever, but of godly and fleshly. And we want to be those who live godly rather than fleshly. And if we live godly, we live in the light. And we're not afraid of our deeds being exposed. Okay? Because our deeds are not sinful, we're living, walking in the Spirit. Does that make sense? And if you're like me, there's been many times in your life, even as a believer, when you don't want your deeds to be known. Right? Because... Like you're ashamed of them, and you know, and that's like that's not godly. That's wicked and it's evil. And so we want to live in a way that we're not ashamed of how we're living, right? And I think that's something that we, I, for sure, but we can take from this is we want to be those who practice the truth, and we can come into the light, and our deeds can be shown. That's what manifest means, and our deeds can be shown as being from God. Like when I come into the light, and people look at my life, and they see who I am and what I do. I want them to see it and say, those things are from God. And then is there any shame in that? No, there's not. Okay? And so we want to live that way in our everyday life. Okay? Um, so, what's the impact? Okay? No Jesus is willing that all understand. Okay? He, he gives a lot to Nicodemus. Okay? Especially for being one of the Pharisees who he, he cracks down on a lot. Right? And he gets, uh, he really uh, talks harshly to him a lot, right? But then he spends all this time and effort with Nicodemus, giving him what he needs to hear so that he can come to know Jesus himself as the Messiah. Okay, so he he is willing that all understand. He is willing that uh, he's not willing that any should perish. He desires Nicodemus. Okay, and we'll see in a second. He desires us not in a second. We'll see in a, in a couple weeks. He desires a Samaritan woman and a Roman centurion, and he desires all these people. And I think John is putting together a picture of us, or for us, of who Jesus is. Jesus is one that desires you no matter who you are, and he's, he's giving these signs for everyone to see. The servants at the, at the wedding, right? Did they get to see who Jesus was? Yeah, they did. They got an opportunity there. And that's, it's like that throughout the whole book of John. So, no... And understand and keep that in the back of your mind as we go through John because we're going to see more and more of it. Like Jesus, He loves everyone. And He desires everyone. And He's tactful and wise about how He speaks to everyone because He wants everyone to come to know Him. 
Okay, and it's a really, it's just a really cool and interesting thing, I think, as we read John to look at. Okay, and then for us, also live in the light. I know that, like, he was talking to Nicodemus, an unbeliever, and he was sharing the gospel with him. But at the end here, I mean, to me, it's like, he, like he's calling us to live in the light, right? I mean, we, we should be those who live in the light, not those who practice evil or those who do evil things, but rather those who are not ashamed of what we're doing because what we're doing comes from God, right? Was Jesus ever ashamed of what he was doing? Because where did his works come from? He said it a hundred times. They came from the Father. And our works can come from God too, right? How can they come from God? Just doing what God tells us to do, right? Looking in the Word of God, seeing what God would have us to do and doing it, right? If we obey our parents, that's works that are coming from God. If we love other people, works coming from God, right? If we spit in our brother and sister's faces and kick their kneecaps, not living from God, right? Living in the darkness, practicing evil, okay? So let's try and live right and live in a way that, like, we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed when other Christians look at us, and we're not ashamed when God looks at us, which He always looks at us. He always sees us. But let's not, let's live in a way that we can be like, I'm proud of what I did because what I did came from God and His power and uh, His character. Thanks for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this lesson. If you have any questions about this lesson or any of the other True to the Bible podcasts, don't hesitate to contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope that you join us for our next lesson.